I'm Ronnie Michael, Global Head of Innovation for KPMG International. For the past 25 years, I've been consulting organizations worldwide around technology transformation, business strategy, and applied innovation. And it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the Back From 2040 podcast, where I ask business leaders, innovators, futurists, academics, and forward thinkers to travel to 2040, tell us what the world looks like, and explore how we got there. For this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Julia Glidden, Corporate Vice President, Worldwide Public Sector at Microsoft. In her role, Julia leads worldwide government, defense, and intelligence and education industry teams that help customers across the public sector harness the power of cloud to serve their people. Welcome, Julia. Thank you so much, Ronnie. It's great to be here. And thanks for coming. And, you know, we sent you all the way to 2040. I'm so curious to hear about your time there. Now, before we dive in, it's important to say this is your 2040, the 2040 you believe we can get to. So, um, you know, let's get started, uh, Julia, putting your public sector and communities hat on. Um, I'd love to hear from you what struck you the most from your time in 2040 and, you know, Tell us a little bit about how we live there, what what cities and communities look like, and what was the biggest difference that you noticed from today? Well, 2040 is just so cool because time and place have kind of been obliterated. What we saw, you know, back, if you can remember, back in the days of the pandemic, when everybody was forced to live from home and cities um, became green and open spaces and people like me could run a worldwide public sector business from the main Canadian border, you know, at the height of ski season, that all seemed so odd to us. And now that's the norm. We really don't have a sense of city and urban rural divide. The ubiquity of technology, the 7G rollout has just meant that we can all be anywhere at any time, living together, virtually experiencing, you know, the joys of a city or the Met Opera from the mountains and then, you know, the, the joys of skiing and, and hiking from a city. So, you know, it's it's a pretty cool reality. And does the word city still mean anything in 2040 to us? Well, it's a state of mind. As I said, time and place aren't as important anymore. It's a state of mind. You know, when me up here in Maine um, want to shake it up a little, I go into my metaverse and I experience a day at the Met or, um, you know, dinner in Greenwich Village. And, you know, similarly, when someone that still lives in a city, of course, cities aren't as we know them. There aren't any cars anymore because people go in their self-motivated pods and a lot of urban pedestrianized areas. You know, a lot of great things we learned during the pandemic that the world as we knew it didn't have to be. We could reimagine a world where, you know, Fifth Avenue was one big outdoor restaurant. And we could reimagine a world where we could all literally work, commute, get to know each other from anywhere in the world without actually physically meeting. But, you know, what we also learned during the pandemic, and I think what's been so beautiful that we've taken into 2040, is the human touch that we still need each other, that as great as technology is, we still need communities. And we've just rebuilt our senses of community. We have a little more of that city sense, sometimes in the mountains, because it's so easy to beam it in. And we have a little more of that rural community in cities as we grow our agriculture on rooftops. And as I said, you know, we, we kind of have street parties on formerly congested Fifth Avenues. That's amazing. So as citizens of this world, what is our expectations then from our governments and municipalities if those still exist? And how do they serve us now in making our lives better and smarter? 
Well, you know, if they still exist is the really cool thing, because what's been so interesting, and I don't think when I look back on, you know, prognostations of the state of the future in 2040, you know, back in the 2020s and 2022 during the pandemic, I was toying with the idea of disintermediation. At that time, I'd been thinking of around a decade, we disintermediating travel agents. Um, real estate agents were the next to be disintermediated. Um, we're starting, we, you know, by 2030, we saw banks and federal reserves disintermediated through cryptocurrency. But what is so interesting in 2040 is the disintermediation of so much of the, the heavy overload, the bureaucracy, of government. You know, it's almost hard for us now to imagine a world where we had to carry around utility bill and a birth certificate to register our kid in a school. You know, as we move forward, the government knows what it needs to know about us. And thanks to decentralized databases and, you know, the advances in blockchain and ledger system, our, we control self-sovereign identity. We control who sees our data what, but we, we grant the government entities that are still here to provide the basics that we still need. We still all want to be healthy. We still all want to have a great education and we still all want to be safe, the fundamentals. Um, but we have much more access and control to those services. They're much more personalized to us and it's much less bureaucratic to access them because I give the government what I want it to know about me and it then can deliver the services I need for me. Yes. Do you remember? scrambling through bank records and, oh, you know, you would get down to stand in a queue for hours in New York City to find out that one document had Julie on it and one document had Julia, so you couldn't get your driver's license renewed and you had to come back. I mean, it just feels like the horse and wagon days, doesn't it? And even when we were online, we still had to fill in forms with information. But dismantle this for me a little bit. How did this happen? Was it technology advancements or was this something that happened around society or, or maybe both? Well, it's always a combination of both, right? Technology is just something that stands alone without people, without human will, without human vision, without human creativity. I mean, I know in 2022, everybody was afraid that AI was going to replace humanity, that we were going to have singularity. And of course that didn't happen because nothing in technology can take away the beauty and the vibrancy of the human spirit. And then there was a fear that technology was going to take over. You know, AI was going to self-replicate and going to develop its own soul. Of course, that doesn't happen because we have human agency and we asserted human agency and we made very conscious decisions that we were going to put technology in the service of humanity. And, you know, and I talked about the, the vital government services, health, education, safety. We focused on those services and we focused on the way in which we as self-sovereign individuals can use technology in self-sovereign ways to control, as I said, how my digital ID, of course, we all have digital ID. Can't even imagine a world without it, right? I mean, it's just crazy the old days of showing your passport and showing your driver's license and showing in the U.S. your TSA card. I mean, of course, we all have digital ID. Of course, we carry it in multiple devices with us. And um, But at the end of the day, it's self-sovereign. It's decentralized. We use, you know, federated systems. We use the advances in blockchain and the ledger system to control where our data is stored, who sees it, when, and in a very personalized way. So again, it's technology enabled us to assert human agency and humanity decided to assert human agency. And it's been a beautiful thing to watch the doom and gloom of 2022 not happen.
<laughs> and you think there was another tipping point other than the pandemic? I mean, it sounds like the pandemic was an accelerator to some of this, but then 20 years later, what were other critical moments in time that really affected us and the way that this evolved? Well, you know, I look back, I was reading, getting ready for today on some of um, the speeches I gave in 2020. And, and I remember saying we saw more transformation in a year than we'd seen in 20 years in public service. So, I mean, there's no doubt that the pandemic came at a critical inflection point. Public sector was toying with cloud. Cloud was beginning to become ubiquitous in the commercial enterprise sector. And then suddenly the risk of doing nothing became bigger than the risk of doing something in public sector. And then the genie came out of a bottle. So we can't deny the tipping point of 2022. But I also think some of the dangerous touch points we went to during the pandemic, some of the not controlling our data, not controlling access to what we donated to online, where we went to during the day, opened our eyes again to the dangers of not having that human agency over technology. And so, you know, when the geopolitical turmoil really erupted at the brink of potential kinetic war, right? Because we've been having and living by 2022 in a lot of day-to-day -day cyber attacks and psychological warfare. I think that tipping point in 2030 where we went to the brink of really understanding what physical warfare could be made us all understand critical infrastructure in a new way. We talked about data centers and cloud being critical infrastructure in 2020, 2022, but we really didn't understand it. And we really didn't embed it as part of the fabric of our life with failover and redundancies. And that trend that we saw in the 2020s to autarky and data sovereignty and everything being done within one country just became unsustainable when we realized the dangers of it. And we realized that the country of Estonia, just as it was so ahead of its era when in 2006, the visionary president realized that digital was going to be, you know, when he became the president, he actually realized it in the 90s, that digital was going to be the way for Estonia to leapfrog from years of communist depression. You know, what we realized in 2030 is that we needed to take a leaf out of Estonia's book and look at the way in which they digitized the whole country and put that data center in Luxembourg. So if the tanks rolled in, Estonia and the identity and the essence of the people of Estonia was in a database in Luxembourg, ready to be reaccessed and rebuilt when freedom came, because freedom always returns. And I think that was a really powerful lesson that in 2030, when we stepped back from the brink, we all learned and we moved away from that, you know, 1930s style data protectionism in the 2030s protectionism and boundaries and insularity that led to the Great Depression, we moved back from the brink of that in a way, again, that was responsible and allowed countries to have self-sovereign control over their data through the power of technology in the way individuals have self-sovereign control over their data. But it wasn't necessarily physically bound. And that's why I opened today by saying the boundaries of time and space obliterated in 2040 with us today. That is so uh, amazing and also very encouraging to kind of hear that we were able to rise to the occasion. But also I'm really interested, were now governments in 2040 able to or really brought themselves to work together for that joint purpose of actually serving the people of their country, people of the world? Is that a joint uh, mission for, for countries or are they still fragmented and looking at their own internal affairs? 
What was really interesting in the 2030s was just realizing that it's not an either or, that maybe with globalism, we went too far in assuming that we were all just citizens of the world. I live in Maine, you know, in in the United (laughs) States. And I will tell you, Maine is as different from where I grew up in Massachusetts as it is from North Carolina, because time and place defines who we are. When you grow up in a place where it's minus 40 regularly in the winter and it's plus 30 Celsius in the summer, you know, that's a very different mindset and um, culture than if you grow up where you are in Israel, you know, in beautiful warm weather and in a tropical environment on the Mediterranean. And and what was so interesting in the 2030s is we learned that it wasn't either or, that maybe we went too far with globalism. It provokes a backlash. Everything in life is yin and yang and thesis, antithesis, synthesis. And I think in the 2030s, we got to that beautiful synthesis where we respected that we have nationalities, we have identities that are rooted in time and place. And then we are also citizens of the world. We also live in one planet. We also share one one essential sense of humanity with essential human needs that impact us all. And getting that balance right and not having it be globalism or nationalism and protectionism was a really beautiful tipping point. And, And that is why I think what we see with technology so interesting today is that, you know, I can be with you in Israel tonight. You know, I can feel like it's 6.15 in Israel tonight. And at the same time, I can go out skiing when we're done talking um, because it's only 12.15 where I am here in Maine. And that's a beautiful thing that technology has allowed us to do, to appreciate, respect, value, adhere to the differences that we all have, while at the same time meeting um, through public services, both at the international level and at the national and regional level, the services that we need. That's fascinating that you're talking about uh, technology. I was just thinking about the the 2020s where there was such a gap between where technology, especially the large global technology companies were and where governments were in terms of the advancements, the digital enablement, and even the vision. How were we able to close that gap? And did those large tech corps join forces together with the governments and municipalities to close that gap? Well, we had an inflection point in the 19-teens, in the early 2000s. I mean, now now I'm really dating myself. It's kind of like in the days of the Pony Express. Um, but if, if you remember, public-private partnership, the word partnership when we talked about public service delivery was contracts. It was, you know, whether or not um, you spent $10,000 to change an HTML page on a website or you did cost sharing in a hospital in the NHS so that the contractors could change the light bulbs at a discount. I mean, it was really, it was not partnership at all. It was really kind of a, a privatization, corporatization of public services that didn't work well. And when the $10,000 bills came in for HTML changes, you know, it all blew up. But the pandemic and then the 2020s really showed us the power of genuine partnership because when society needed technology companies the most, right, the darkest hours, it's easy now that we have 20 years of hindsight from the pandemic, it's easy to forget 2030 when everybody was really terrified. We really didn't know how lethal COVID was. Um, Fundamental services Children, we needed to shift entire countries to online learning, entire countries of learners overnight. Shared Services Canada had to take a five-year plan to roll out remote working for 300,000 civil servants. They had to take a five-year rollout plan and do it over a weekend. And in that, um, what we all learned 
is partnership is truly understanding and trusting each other. Partnership is not worrying about the contractual niceties in an hour of need. There is nothing like a genuine crisis to have people genuinely deal with each other as human beings. And it was beautiful that that understanding and shift from contracts to people in terms of how technology companies and public servants work together carried us through that dangerous point in the 2030 era where we really were going to shift into kinetic war and able to work together for the good of peace and for the good of humanity. But it really came back to understanding partnership in the truest sense of the word. And that often meant tech companies having to do what's right for society, not the bottom line, and shift some thinking that shareholder value extends beyond quarterly reportings and earnings. And that's been a wonderful thing to watch as well. That's interesting. Um, many of the guests on this uh, podcast talk about that um, trust issue and doing what's right. So I also want to talk to you about that trust theme in 2040. You were talking about the, really this amazing reality where we're harnessing technology to its fullest and best capabilities in travel and communication, in personal communication as well, and in our lives. So let me ask you just two questions on the top of that. One is, are we really in the era of trust? Can we really trust technology to its fullest extent? And also what enabled us to do that? I know cyber crime still exists and cyber threats still exist. How was this level of trust gained? Back in the 20th century, there was a politician, I'm not sure anybody remembers him, but he was Ronald Reagan. And he said, trust but verify. And that's what the technologies that I've been talking about enabled us to do. It wasn't just trust us and let AI and, you know, online digital identities rule the world and rule us and monitor where we went and know everything we did. We built in, we exercised our human agency and we used the advances in technology to build in self-sovereign capabilities that enabled us to control our data and enabled us to verify. Now, that verification and trust came with decentralization so we moved away from believing we put everything in a data center or everything in any one cloud. And we understood that we need, as the Estonia example led the way in the um, early 2000s, we understood that we needed backups and we needed multi-cloud and we needed the ability to not have even our own personal identity in any one place vulnerable to any one hacking. And that decentralization, that technology enabled and that self-sovereign control gave us all the sense we now have of yes, of course, there's always risk, right? There's risk in everything, but we have reduced that risk to an acceptable level because there isn't any single point of failure. Yeah. So looking back at the 2020s, do you think that our communities, our government and civil servants actually helped us improve our well-being in the 2040s? Do we have better quality of life? Well, we have better partnership with our civil service. I mean, if you recall in the 2020s, there was a lot of geopolitical upheaval and backlash against some of the controls and some of the mechanisms that our government leaders took to keep us safe. And people felt it went too far and they felt they weren't listened to. It was tense. There was some tense errors in the early 20s. But again, um, that... I think really opened up our public servants' eyes and political leaders' eyes to the need to really listen and learn and collaborate and co-create and to take advantage of all of the tools we have to listen to everybody 
not just the loudest voices who live in urban centers, but the folks that we don't hear so much from who live in rural and isolated communities like I do. And, you know, we went very close to censorship. We went very close to the edge of technology, turning people's voices off, turning people's movements off. And we pulled back from it. And we instead made a conscious decision to use that technology to partner and to listen and to learn and to co-create and to strengthen communities everywhere. Because if you remember in the 2020s, we'd often talk about smart cities. That was still the buzzword. It frustrated the heck out of me because it was, you know, they were putting smart labels on everything like they used to with green. And then if everything was green, nothing was green. And if everything was smart, nothing was smart. And what was really Pivotal is in the 20s, we moved away from that sense of a smart city to the concept of a smart community and a smart nation and smart society, which is much more inclusive and much more about bringing the benefits. You know, people want access to public safety quick and efficiently. They want, you know, air quality control. Um, where I live, if a tractor overturns on the road to Canada, we're all stuck, right? Because I mean, there's only one road in and one road out. Similarly, if someone hits a moose on a snowy night, right? We all have similar needs, maybe at different scales. But it was really heartening to see that conscientious shift for the notion of smart societies and smart communities that embraced us all wherever we lived. That is heartwarming and uh, gives a really big sense of optimism. So, you know, now you have to go back to the 2020s here now. No, I don't want to do that. <laughs> don't make me. Sorry, what, do you think, uh, what do you think is the biggest lesson? I mean, what are you taking back um, from your journey? And also maybe something that you think we should change and do right now. If I look back on 2022 and all the instability and tensions and divisions um, and negative uses of technology and fears about negative uses of technology, if I could go back and tell the worried me, it would be the power of human agency. It would be the fact that, you know, don't worry, the human spirit does prevail. We have to consciously do it. It's not don't do anything. Don't worry is not be passive, but we made conscious decisions. We made conscious decisions not to demonize international organizations as being out there. We made conscious decisions to understand where the United Nations or the European Union or the World Economic Forum can come in and help us. And those organizations made conscious decisions to listen, as I said, and to respect localism. And, and that global became really true. And as global became true and we exercised our human agency over technology, we turned the corner from the dystopian vision of singularity and technology overtaking humanity to the really, you know, we can never, as I said, I don't want to sound overly optimistic. You know, everything's great in 2040. There was a um, political scientist, Fukuyama, who declared the end of history when the Cold War happened again back in the 20th century. I'm really dating myself. And of course, you know, history never ends. We're not in a technological utopia, but we're in a very good stasis. And I think we've got a good sense of balance and we have a good understanding that we can control technology to help us in a positive way and we can get the right balances between local and global, between technology and human agency, between having those seamless personalized services that are now just so blended into our day-to-day -day life, but also not just being somebody in that old movie minority report that's being constantly surveilled and controlled, right? It's been nice to see us get to the best of both worlds. And we have to continue our vigilance. 
Well, that's uh, great. And with that optimistic voice, I want to thank you so much for joining the podcast. This has been so interesting and it really has left me with a great sense of optimism about the future. So thank you so much for that. My pleasure. I want to go back and read my old doctoral dissertation in some of the history books I studied because you've taken me way back in time today. <laughs> Thanks so much, Julia. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Back From 2040, the KPMG podcast where our guests travel to 2040 and back and tell us all about it. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast channel. And if you have any feedback, you can email us on innovation.team at kpmg.com.